Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council here in Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio, Trek's Marketing and Communications Coordinator. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's episode is a replay of our recent Market Matters event on the future of the retail sector here in DFW. It was moderated by DCEO's Christine Perez and featured panel discussions with Frank Mialopoulos of Corinth Properties, Amanda Moreno-Lake of Jim Lake Companies, Herb Weitzman of Weitzman, Mark Mazinter of Open Realty Advisors, Jennifer Pearson of Strive, and Alan Shore of The Retail Connection. Before we get into the replay, remember to subscribe to TrekCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can follow the Real Estate Council on social media. We are at the Real Estate Council on Facebook and at Trek Dallas, T-R-E-C Dallas, on Twitter and Instagram. We just announced several upcoming events for the rest of May and June, so head on over to recouncil.com and get your tickets now. We've also opened applications for our popular Real Estate 101 for Nonprofits series, which returns this summer for its 10th year. If you're interested in applying, again, head on over to recouncil.com. Now, here's a replay of Market Matters, Retail Reawakened, right here on TrekCast. It is my distinct and great honor this morning to introduce our moderator, Ms. Christine Perez, who will introduce our first panel. For those of you who haven't met Christine, she is truly real estate royalty in DFW, so we're very honored to have her here. Christine is the editor of DCEO Magazine, named the country's best regional business publication for five of the last six years. She also oversees DCEO's online news site and its DCEO real estate DCO Real Estate and DCO Healthcare Verticals, along with the Dallas 500 and DCO's annual real estate presentation. Christine is a national award-winning journalist who has covered North Texas since 2000, specializing in the commercial real estate market. So please uh, lend a hand and welcome Christine Perez. Panel number one, please make your way to the stage. All right, well, uh, thank you all for joining us bright and early this morning as we try to get our arms around what's happening in the retail real estate sector and what lies ahead. So we're kicking things off with a look at redevelopment and what's going on with the repurposing of retail space. And we are fortunate to have three of the region's foremost experts on the topic to share their insights. Uh, You can read more about them in the program, but uh, very quickly, uh, we have Frank Mihalopoulos, owner of Corinth Properties, an industry veteran with more than 40 years of experience. Frank's golden touch has transformed millions of square feet of space around the country. And next is Amanda Marino-Lake, partner at Jim Lake Companies. That's her formal title. She also has been called the queen of Oak Cliff real estate. Amanda has led a stunning number of uh, adaptive reuse projects throughout the region, especially in the southern sector. 
And finally, a man who really needs no introduction, Herb Weitzman, founder and executive chairman of Weitzman, one of the largest <laughs> retail-focused real estate services and brokerage firms in the state of Texas. He's had a profound impact on the region and the industry, and he's doing his part to continue the legacy with a $3 million gift to create the Herbert D. Weitzman Institute for Real Estate at UT Dallas. So please uh, join me in welcoming everyone. <clears throat> all right, we've uh, all seen the retail apocalypse report although you haven't read them in DCEO. We've been enjoying a nice run here in North Texas. So I thought we'd start by just setting the stage and getting a broad update on the market. And Herb, uh, you are the one with all of the numbers, so I'm coming to you th with uh, this one. Okay, well, I don't think it could be better. Uh, you know, and I think a half century here in Dallas, uh, in the real estate market, I think that uh, it's totally, in, really totally in balance. You know, the economy's uh, very good, and uh, what we're all concerned about is uh, occupancy and what the vacancy is, and uh, for the first time in half century, uh, Dallas, I think, will be at 95% occupied uh, in all retail space in, um, in the state, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, has its pluses and also has its minuses. You know, uh, companies, um, you know, overhead's high. Companies have to have that big deal. And, you know, I think we're seeing the very tail end of uh, the big box expansion. We're seeing the contraction of uh, department stores. You know, we had, you know, about 25 malls here. And today, you know, we have about 13 that are viable. The uh, Some are dying before our eyes. You know, Redbird, Valley View, uh, Collin Creek, Vista Ridge. And, um, some have already gone to the, to the graveyard and uh, have uh, been uh, redeveloped. So <clears throat> uh, from uh, the perspective of uh, what we're doing right now, you've got to figure out, well, okay, what do, we, what do we do? How do we change? Because the market's changing right before our very eyes. And the big grill out there, as we know, is, is Amazon. And so... There's a convergence that's been taking place for uh, a number of years now, about you know, three years, where uh, everybody is uh, converting to digital platforms you know, in their retail operations. <clears throat> we, you know, Walmart is spending you know, $12 billion uh, digitally uh, worldwide. Uh, other companies' targets over a billion. So, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, retail change so much, and uh, some retails are going to be left behind because they're not, they're not spending the money. Uh, you know, we have created in our company our own proprietary digital marketing platform to uh, drive sales to the retailer, uh, to, to drive uh, buyers to the center and to the stores, and we're... We're seeing uh, our tenants on a monthly basis ramp up. Uh, last year, <clears throat> sales overall were up about 7%. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, if you don't operate digitally, <clears throat> you're, there's going to be, you're going to lose, you're gonna, you will lose ground in the retail market and the sales market as, as I see it, because Amazon's going to continue to grow. Uh, Walmart with its jet.com is going to continue to grow, et cetera, et cetera. Go ahead. 
All right, well, one thing we've certainly seen is a boom in redevelopment activity. So wanted to just talk a little bit about what trends are driving this. And Frank and Amanda, you've been at it for a while, uh, so uh, I'll throw that question to you guys. Well, fortunately, most of the malls <clears throat> that I've kind of repurposed and redone or good real estate, it's good real estate. And you gotta look at the real estate first and the basics of is there a reason and a purpose and what really can fit to that location. You know, a lot of them, just brief history, a lot of the malls that were built around America were <coughs> basically, I use it, the dysfunctionality between the mall developers and the retailers who, if you wanted to get in this mall, in this mall with your big boys, Simon, or anybody else, they say, okay, you gotta take these other four that we're building. And so we, you go back in the 80s, we created a lot of product, and therefore, America was the most overbuilt retail to, to purport for the population. So now we have some of that effect. We have the change of going out with electronics. So, but a lot of these locations are main and main, or they're on a highway, they're at the main intersection. So it's looking at it, what can it be? So we've been fortunate to convert some of the space, the big retail space, into non-retail uses. Uh, we, we talked about in Nashville, we did the uh, Vanderbilt Medical Center. We'll show you a couple pictures where we took 400,000 square feet of clinics, offices, and changed the whole transformation. It was retail with medical together. It's been open now for seven years and it's been very successful. And it continues to succeed from both sides, from the retailers and from the health healthcare clinics. We're working on another project where we're putting offices in the back office. So we're, we're looking at here locally, Redbird, and it needs to be a mixed use. You can't look at it as a retail anymore. You gotta look at it, what, what could it serve, what purposes, and in these malls, you've got to create traffic generators. So what are traffic generators? There are jobs. There's people that can live there. You convert some of them. We're looking at some apartments. We're looking at hotels. So you've got to look at these as properties that you could use that would have been there if you had to develop with a clean sheet of paper. But the benefit is if you buy it right and you've got a low base in your buildings, you can offer economic incentives and, and rents to, to people that would, could, could not duplicate and find to put their back offices. In some cases, we're like 50% less occupancy costs that if they had to build a new place, they're more efficient. And so, you know, that's, that's the main thing is what else can it be? And, and that's how we've been successful with it. What so, about you, Amanda? Okay, so our product is different than, than these two gentlemen. Our, we actually, my husband and I really love old buildings, so we're into redeveloping buildings and saving buildings that were built like in 1920s, 1914, 1936. And our challenge has really been more the infrastructure part and making sure that these buildings are uh, gonna be in compliance with the, the, the existing code, Chapter 51 of the Dallas Development Code. And I think that's extremely important that we're able to create planned development areas in order to be able to lessen the parking and being able to bring it up to code. All right, well, look around the market. It seems like there are some, speaking specifically about malls right now, some haves and have-nots. Some properties like North Park and Highland Park Village continue to flourish. Others lie uh, just a few miles away are suffering. So what are the ingredients that make for a successful mall? Frank? Well, we categorize the malls as A, B, Cs, and Ds. In the A malls, there was a transformation where all the major owners and REITs focused on their A-malls. So they focused on Dyson Squares, the North Parks, uh, King of Prussia. You could name the top 20 malls, and those are the ones that succeed. That's where Mark's, 
our next speaker is going to put all his tenets. I mean, they, they're there, they're going to be there, they're successful, and they're evolving as, as, as work goes around. In Atlanta, there's a Phipps Atlantic Square that Simon owns. Well, they're going to tear some of it up and put some high-rises, but the main thing is it's the main shopping. Those department stores are doing well there. And they're going to always be there. There's a reason and a purpose, and you know, they're going to succeed. It's the B malls and the C malls that where the evolution revolution is happening. Some of the B malls are becoming closer to A malls, so they're putting in the H&Ms and trying to maintain traffic. Uh, you know, the Willow Bend Mall here in town is an example where you got Strombrier Mall up the street, but you got Willow Bend that's trying to figure out how they reinvent themselves and in the process of doing that. And they've done some creative deals to bring in restaurants and non-core retail users to keep them alive and bring in traffic. And so the ones that don't succeed are the C's and the D malls. Some of them are a good location, but for some reason they built two in the area. There should have been one mall in the area, and so there's two, so that second one has to be redone. Uh, the other way a mall succeeds, if it's all by itself, in the middle of nowhere, if it's in, you know, uh, in New Mexico where there's 100 miles away from any next retailer, they usually tend to succeed. But when you have two in a market or there is not a reason for it to happen, and the other part where the malls have failed is a lot of the department stores were independent stores. You had multiple chains like the Sanger Harris and Foley's and Gottmergers, and, and I mean, there were, there were Parisians. They all became Macy's. Overnight, you know, they become one department store. And for Richmond, Virginia, for example, there were five Macy's stores in that town of Richmond because there were four of them were different department stores that they bought and merged. And this town needed one or one and a half stores. So when they start closing these stores, the whole, those malls started to decay. Uh, of course, there's the Sears story, and that's, you know, Sears had everything, and now they have nothing. But, uh, you know, that's just the American tragedy. Uh, the other part is, recently, there's a group of folks are coming in with hot money who are buying these malls that are dying, but they're buying their cash flow, and they're just milking it all they can, and they're going to basically throw them out to the skeletons. I mean, they're going to take all the cash flow, they're not paying taxes, they're not paying, in, and it's sad, you're seeing these decay even further, and some of those are gonna be, you know, a really nasty site in the future, but maybe there's an opportunity for it to be an industrial park or something else if it's good real estate. I don't, I don't think that many of us here are gonna <clears throat> be, be involved with any malls. I just think it's, it's out of everybody's realm here, you know. They're, they're, they're gonna be, uh, you know, we're on our way to probably 50% of them disappearing. You know, you see a bunch of them here that are, that are, you know, dying, and nobody's, nobody's coming back and successfully renovating them. Redbird, Vista Ridge, uh, Valley View, you know, it's too costly. It's, it's too difficult. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think that, I think that the, uh, you know, the department stores, you know, there's also a huge problem. Now, as Frank talked about, you know, you go with these alternate uses, and I had a very, one of the most successful mall owners in the country, you know, told me, he says, you know, um, you know, doing mixed use is the best way to lose money four ways at once. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's the truth with the hotel and office and apartments with the retail, you know, if it's not, if you don't, if you don't really have the right ingredients and the density and the the spendable and all these things that go along with making that type of mixed use project successful, um, you know, you're, you're gonna fail. And uh, many times, even, even with a smaller project, you have to, in today's market, it, it requires you building 
uh, in stages. You can't put the center together at, and it opens at one time, like, you know, the mall would open if a mall, but you look at Victory, one side of Victory, you know, was built and the other side wasn't, and it, it failed. You have to have both sides. A mall has to be built at once and have, you know, occupancy and, and uh, uh, a lot of traffic in the mall to, for, the, uh, for the retailers to survive. So um, I, I don't think, I don't see a very good, a very good future, you know, for malls. Now, let, let me clarify, you know, when, when Frank was talking about, you know, the ABC malls, uh, about 300 a foot and under, you'd be a C mall, and, they, and they're struggling. And most of them are, are going to disappear and fail. Uh, 300 to 450, if you've got a good location and you're lucky enough to have most of your department stores, you can retenant and you'll raise the sales as the area densifies, gets better. Because that, that type of center has already become established more like uh, a community center. And then, you know, the A's are, you know, they go from 500 foot on up to 1,000 foot and more. So uh, you, you don't want to own a C mall. So you're going to see more of those, uh, in my opinion, you know, bite the dust. And uh, then it's going to take a long time for leases to run out and for property to be bought. And or if the department stores own their, their properties, then you got to negotiate with them. And you can't do anything without all the land in most instances. I mean, in Valley View, you know, you've got the corner owned by Sertage, and you have the, uh, that's the, that's the Preston Road corner, and that's 20 acres, and you got the 20 acres at Montford owned by somebody else, and that was the former Foley's property. So that mall has about 20, uh, about 200 feet of frontage on LBJ Freeway. So, you know, you gotta go put roads in, you gotta do an overlay district, well, how do you get everybody to go at one time if, you, if it's all splintered? And a lot of these malls are splintered. Very, very few of them where the owner owns all of the property. And so it's gonna take a long time for some of these. Uh, what you've seen out in Collin Creek is, is uh, uh, a lot of money, some beautiful pictures. Uh, my opinion, you know, that developer probably isn't gonna develop, it's gonna be sold. Uh, got it entitled, and got, got some EDC grants. And then, you know, you're going in now and you're having to buy the department stores. Uh, they, they, they were all owned separately. And eventually that'll happen. It's going to take a lot of time, but this is just kind of what you're going to see. The market is, is really today in the, the smallest type center, the neighborhood center. I mean, that's the safest, and that's what's trading. And there's a lot of sales going on in that area, 15,000 feet, 10,000 feet. Um, in the 86 to 90 cycle, those properties all did well. You know, they're individually owned. And they worked hard, and they made it through. Services don't stop. So that's, the, that's probably the safest investment of all, and that's really where a lot of people are playing, and they realize that. Uh, the grocery business is, uh, has its own challenges. You know, they're right now spending tons of money in, in the digital area, and they're, they're, uh, they slow down their, their expansion, which they should. They got to get a grip on uh, the whole program and they're bringing in curbside and they're bringing in all the other options where you can shop anytime, anywhere, any place. And people are loving that. And so a lot of the, the conversions are taking place. And this is costly for the grocery stores per, per store. And it, it takes time to work it out. You got to move tenants and 
and you know get them you know their space. Sometimes you have to re re get a approvals for the uh, parking, you know, for their you know delivery, and to the customer coming in. So uh, those are those are just so many things that are going on right now. But the mall business, I'd say, is out of our realm. Of <clears throat> we operate one mall at Denton, and it's been a tremendous struggle. Uh, there's nothing that's been done, uh, you know, that changed, that moved the needle at all. So it's just grinding it out. Eventually we'll go through the cycle, and eventually we'll get there. And, but, you know, it's not like uh, it was, where retailers were lining up at the mall. You know, it, you, you go to it, at the uh, ICSC, and you see them taking straws in line to, to sign a lease and commit. Well, those days are over. Right, it continues to evolve. So across the region, there's a vast array of redevelopment projects in the works. And I wanted uh, each of you to take a moment to talk about your, uh, some of your projects. And uh, to go along with the PowerPoint, Frank, we are going to start with you. So uh, you'll be seeing a couple of pictures right now. And I want to focus a little bit on <clears throat> the first one is Redbird. And <clears throat> to some of the things that uh, Herbert said, the obstacles in some of these malls is multiple owners, uh, ECR agreements, restriction agreements that are in place. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Peter Brodsky, who never bought commercial real estate, was on the Kipps, Kipps board across the street, and his first commercial property bought was Redbird. Well, he bought the core, the inside, 27 acres, but over the last three years, we've been able to put together 80 acres. The, the agreement of restrictions that were on the properties, REAs with Sears and the department stores, have expired. So there is no obstacles and putting the project together. So once he bought the mall part, he bought the Macy's building, he bought the Dillard's building, bought the J.C. Penney's building where the city controlled that anyway, and then we bought about eight different parcels across the way to reimagine and repurpose something that was at the corner of I-20, 67 Camp Wisdom, and with the mayor's growth south incentives, this incentives and growth south focus, this is the biggest property that could be redeveloped to show what could happen in the southern sector of Dallas. So with that, there's been a lot of momentum established from the city leaders, and, and these projects cannot happen with financing in place. And while we talk about financing real quick, I want to take a shout out to J.P. Morgan Chase and Kevin. Only, I only see two bankers in this group. Otherwise, they said retail, none of the bankers showed up. Otherwise, that other half of the room would have been full. So thank you for coming to our bankers who understand retail. <laughs> anyway, so what we did is this could, this could not be all retail. There was too much retail. We still don't own the Sears, but there's something working in that respect. Burlington's there, but there's a core of retail. So we decided to be a mixed-use project. Well, this is a public-private partnership. The, everything had lined up after about 20 years of decay of Redbird and all the nicknames Deadbird. Things have lined up because everything is there uh, as far as the community engagement and what's going to happen. So this is going to be a mixed-use with community engagement. The city came in and gave us, uh, not gave us, we can earn $22 million of money, public money, to restructure the property, put in new streets, put in a public park, reshape the property so there's cross access and there's connectivity. We're tearing down the western part of the mall to open that up and put a road through it. Today we have two deals working with a 300-unit 300, 300 apartment complex with Palladium and a Marriott Courtyard on the west side. So there's going to be, they're going to be anchors on the west side of the mixed use and the demand is there uh, with everything that's going on in I-20 and all the businesses going on I-20 and I-45, there's a big demand. So 
That's going to change that. There's going to be a new entrance on the west side going into the office compound of the second floor. We're working on that same deal for the community center. We've got about 150 to 200,000 square feet of potential medical office clinics coming here. Major clinics that will change, transform the area. And it's going to be a, a, a hierarchy of multiples. Indigent care will be part of it. We're working with our friends at Parkland. And then specialty care to give service to that whole southern sector. That will change and transform the day-to-day -day -day use. We're also giving the Dallas Community College 30,000 square feet to come do some vocational training as part of their training program and their big push with their $2 billion bond program they just passed, or million two, whatever, to help bring in uh, training and job training, workforce training into the project. We have Jarvis Center in there doing the same thing, training. So we're going to have probably 50 to 100,000 square feet of community engaged uh, opportunities in the mall around the atrium. The uh, Foot Locker had three stores in the mall. They're coming out and doing their prototypical store up front. 20,000 square feet is under construction today at the park to be their, their signature store in the United States. Most of you all know the Starbucks that got more publicity than an AT&T $100 million project downtown is there and it's a workforce Starbucks. It is the community center today. It's where everything happens. If, you're in, if you have a meeting in the southern side of town, you're going to have Starbucks today. Next door is Frost Bank is coming in with a branch office and we're putting, looking to put a restaurant next door to them on the front building. So the transformation is starting to happen. The retail is going to be less and less. Every day we talk about it, but it's going to be a, a, definitely a mixed-use community. Uh, fortunately, we have some key leaders in this community who are philanthropic in one respect, but they're also smart investors. And Peter's been able to get about 10 different investors to come in that believe in this project to help with the capital, to get, you know, there's more equity than there is debt here because what it is. So between public money from the city, private money that's, pub, you know, real equity, it is happening. And so hopefully a year from now, two years from now, you're going to see a transformation. There is an atrium in there that has a 1,500, 2,000 capacity to do a big events. My goal as being a member of Trek is to have the gala right there at Redbird. So if I have to chair it, we're doing it, but we're going to do the gala at Redbird <laughs> one year, okay? Right <laughs> Linda, Linda, you got you my You just commitment. volunteered. Yeah, I heard it. but I think they'll have an event center when it's all said and done. What we have is facilities, buildings, and parking, and we're talking about doing mid-teen, low-teen rents to some of these users and still make money. You can't find those kind of rents in the Metroplex. So that's part of it. So that's, that's the big one here that's happening in our backyard. Real quick, you know, the transformation, what we did, in Nashville, just a quick couple pictures. Hundred Oaks Mall was on the other side of the freeway, but it was a good location, and it was the <clears throat> first mall built in Nashville. And when we bought it, people locally said, you're crazy, what are you doing? It looked like, on the right side, Willy Wonka meets Back to the Future exhibit, you know, and we conformed it into half medical clinics, half retail. It had an existing Regal Theater, there was a Petsmark, uh, <clears throat> Burlington Ross, Michaels, TJ Maxx, we had to work through all those retail retailers, get a permission to put the medical clinics. Their sales went from like six million to 13 million, some of the retailers that are there today when we started the project. I mean, this was a nightmare because we literally, for 45 days, we were going to TJ Maxx at midnight and put in plumbing in there for the upstairs space to, you know, with security and then reopen it up at six in the morning, get out of there so they can reopen for the public. So these aren't easy, they're not made for everybody. So that's, that's one that's been the ideal model for mixed use, but then there's a couple others. 
This is a rendering of what we're doing with a Sears building we bought in Atlanta, and we're converting that to an office. We have a lease working that's gonna take about 300,000 square feet when it's all said and done. This building, the old Coles building, and we're adding windows and opening up and making it, a, transforming it, and this is a concept of how when you take a mall and transform it into a, what Will Works and what all these Reguses are trying to do is an open air office facility where people can work and play and have lunch and go get their wellness done. So that's what we're transforming these things into, something that's just not what you imagine a mall being, but it's a, it's a place. It's a different kind of place where you can work, eat, and, 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 and shop. So anyway, that's, I think that's the last one. All right, terrific. Okay, Amanda, why don't you talk a little bit about your projects and some of the challenges that you have had to overcome? I think with us, well, Bishop Arts, um, you could see those pictures of before and after. I came, I think Mr. Lake came in in 1985. We ca I came in in 1989. And so part of the problem there was that, um, as you could see that picture, uh, there was just really no activity. It wasn't to the city of Dallas came in and we had a lot of service business, came in and um, put in about $2 million in, in infrastructure. Uh, we created CD7 back in, I believe in 19, 1990, which allowed us to uh, lessen the parking, became a conservation district, and uh, it became more uh, a destination, and that's what we do. We really target the small entrepreneurs that are just starting off a one of a kind, it's different. Um, you, have to, you have to go there to have a Hattie's. And we actually, because we control about 98% of core Bishop Arts, we really don't give competition. We don't create another Eno's or another pizzeria. We really protect our tenants. I believe that that's extremely important is to have that, uh, that partnership with your tenants. And so for us, uh, Bishop Arts has been successful just because we protect our tenants in the city came in and spent money there and revitalized it. Excellent. Yes, and uh, that's Waxahachie. Oh, we had a lot of problems there. <laughs> <laughs> the infrastructure wasn't in place. It's, it was very difficult to redevelop um, whenever these uh, the sewer lines, the water lines were, weren't up to par. They, they had decayed uh, really bad. So. It was a, a nightmare, but thank God that uh, we purchased those buildings and, and paid cash for them. So we had to come in and really do part of the infrastructure, and the city was supposed to reimburse us, but they haven't yet. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> no, it's not good. Um, and so and then um, that's what happened with that. We still haven't redeveloped um, the Texas Theater down in Waxahachie. We're waiting for them to uh, come in with the infrastructure there. And that's Ennis, so I learned a big lesson in Waxahachie, and so I met with the city of Ennis, and they ended up putting about $8 million in all the infrastructure. We're about to start uh, redeveloping those buildings, so we're excited about that. Uh, it is in the planned development area as well, so it doesn't even matter what the uses are. Uh, it is, even if you change the uses, the parking requirements are zero, which really helps us because you can continue to um, put whatever type of business we are dividing it up, the back becomes the front, really activating the alleys and, and really targeting the small entrepreneurs. So we're very excited about that. And it'll also be a mixed-use development, work-live, um, and we're excited, more of micro-units in that, in that region. 
Yeah, you've spoken before about the importance of the public-private uh, partnership uh, in, in ensuring a successful project, and that these really drive home that point. Okay, uh, Herb, we're going to ask you to talk about Golden Triangle Mall, and then we're going to get to maybe a couple of audience questions. What was that question? Your experience up in Denton. Oh, in Denton? Oh. Uh, well, experience is, uh, it's been really, really good. We've gotten tremendous results. The mall, when uh, <clears throat> we uh, got into this uh, project, uh, we'd been a part of it when it was built by Simon. So we, we had um, handled all the uh, land around the mall on three sides and um, a belt center just across the street from it called Denton Town Center. Well, you know, we, we didn't realize that uh, the market was going to change as much as it has digitally and that the department stores, uh, it would take them long t a long time to really get uh, their digital programs uh, up and running. And, you know, it was a big investment. So they delayed and they tried all kind of things. But then they realized that, you know, with the, you know, in 1990 uh, was really the start of the junior box growth where they would take, you know, a department out of the department store and they'd expand it five times and put it across the street uh, where it was very convenient or more convenient to shop and had a better selection. So uh, there was that erosion. I think that's really where one of the first things that happened. So, and it certainly uh, didn't, Golden Triangle Mall was no uh, exception. It was affected by everything that went around it and we were uh, a part of that. And what we've done is uh, there's been over uh, $60 uh, million dollars put into it. Uh, we've got EDC grant from the city. Uh, as you can see, you know, we've, you know, these are 40-foot portals. Uh, we sat down early on uh, with Chase Bank, and Chase has been uh, a huge supporter of what uh, we've done up there. They've been, they've been, you know, in lockstep with us all the way, and um, as you can see, this was, a, this was a mall where you, you could have put a match to it and burned it. And there was also, at the time we got into it, two department stores were moving out. Uh, Penny's and Macy and um, Dillard's had made commitments to go up to Razor Ranch, uh, which is six miles north. And we uh, strategized with Chase and decided that we could save the mall. And because it was at the best location in the city and all the growth was south and north, uh, area had um, uh, 1,800 gas well permits, so there wasn't going to be a lot of development on a lot of that land. It was the wrong area of town anyway. So uh, we started in, and, and, uh, and as you see in the mall, we changed the ceiling and did indirect lighting, and uh, the floor uh, was replaced in many places. We um, created seating, seating areas, installed Wi-Fi, uh, we put in skylights, and uh, how long we were retenanting, re and we started to get traction with some of the mall, national mall companies. We uh, put in fountains outside the portals, the new entrances, and uh, redid the drives outside, and so really changed it. Uh, it had the ugliest signs in the state of Texas, and now we have uh, beautiful digital signs out, out on the project. So. Uh, it's now, uh, we've increased the sales about $170 a square foot from where we started, and uh, it's, we continue to work 
to uh, increase those sales. We're bringing in uh, other alternative uses. Frank's alluded to all these uses that you can put apartments there. We can't put apartments, but hotels. We're not. Gonna, I don't think we're going to put a hotel, even though there's Hampton across the street under construction. Uh, but we're putting in a 60,000-foot gym. Uh, we're bringing in a 30,000-foot clinic. And uh, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of things that have happened and will continue to happen with the mall. The mall will survive and will will thrive. Uh, Bucky's came in as a testimonial to the strength of the location at the southwest corner and put in a facility open two or three months ago, and they have 100 pumps. And, uh, and also, uh, uh, Car CarMax has bought a site there. And so it's all thriving. It's just a matter of time and patience. And uh, gradually, we're, we're getting there. So uh, I think that we'll get this center into the $500, $550 uh, square foot uh, bracket and uh, with the renovation. But would this have survived? Absolutely not if we hadn't made the commitment. Right. And when we made that commitment, we got pennies to stay. Pennies were modeled. We got Dillard's to stay. Dillard's re re reformatted their store. They had a separate 30,000 store, which we're, we're putting the clinic in. And that went inside, the, inside of the Dillard's store, which helped traffic inside the store. Macy's had already remodeled. Now we're faced with a Sears store that has huge amount of restrictions on it that is basically impossible for anybody to do it. We're working uh, with um, Sears on that particular project and have three uh, commitments for two spaces. Uh, we worked that out. But all I can tell you about, and Frank, I don't know uh, if you want to touch on this, costs in our business have gone up, you know, last 30 months they've gone up uh, percentage a month. and and in some instances with the tariffs, there's increases on top of that today. And when you are building ground up, that's why you're seeing this huge contraction of building. We do the, we do the study every year and statewide, the numbers are basically nothing. You've got the retailers that have slowed down their expansion and we also you know, have this tremendous cost that has been built into everything you do to renovate or build. And with the rent, rents, they're not going up in most instances. In many instances, they're contracting. If you're renewing, there's not a retailer that come to you and say, I like a reduction. And we're helping those because everybody's got to work together to get through this tough period. And so these costs aren't, aren't I mean, the, the numbers and, uh, you know, and the, uh, the number, the rent's going down and the cost's going up is not the perfect scenario. It's not the perfect storm. However, that's on the left hand. On the right hand, it's great. And to slow down, to slow down development uh, and, and have these centers today at the best occupancy they've been in half a century, and it's really due to the economy, the economy being stable, and it's also due to the fact that we're not building eight or 10 million feet a year like we did for many, many years, brand new. Now we're catching up right now. And you know, with 125, 130,000 jobs and then in migration, the densification is taking place and these centers are, are really uh, doing well. 
Now, in most instances, you know, uh, you have to really do something. You just can't sit there with an old sinner that looks ugly. And uh, one of the things you're asking for is, ask your question was, what are you doing? And these sinners are old. So we're, we're remodeling, you know, the partners that are in these deals with us. Uh, they all, uh, they'll uh, forego cash flow and create second <coughs> funds and go put two or three million dollars into the center for, re for renovation. And there's about 15 to 20 things we do outside the walls. You guys, thank you so much for the great information. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up right there because we have another panel uh, coming up. And I'm sorry for no time for Q&A from the audience, but these guys will be around if you want to come up and ask them questions individually. And now we're going to do a stage uh, shift here. And thank you guys so much. Hard act to follow. Okay, I'm going to introduce our panelists as they make their way up here. Um, so uh, this panel, we're going to uh, look at the future of retail. Um, so let's see here, uh, we'll start with Alan. Alan Shore, I have relied on Alan as an expert source for a long time. He's one of the smartest people I know. Uh, he's also co-founder of the Retail Connection and serves as the firm's president Thanks. and chairman of the board. Among other things, he helps set strategic direction for TRC and leads its investment and merchant, oh. merchant banking businesses. So it's his job to really uh, keep his finger on the pulse of the sector. Uh, next up is Jennifer Pearson, managing partner and co-founder of Strive. She has more than two decades of experience as an investment sales pro and at one point led the private capital investment group at CBRE. Uh, with more than 300 brokers reporting to her. That's not really a task I'd wish on anyone. Anyway, she formed her own firm in 2015 and merged it into what's now Strive. And uh, we also have Mark Macenter, founder of Open Realty Advisors, where he leads the firm's principal investment endeavors, hotel development, and business development. He was a founding venture investor of uh, Restoration Hardway and his, uh, Hardware and has deep experience funding retail and restaurant ventures. So Alan, let's start with you. You talk to a lot of PE people, and they all want to know where we are in the cycle. So what do you tell them? <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> I tell them what I've been telling people for the last two years. One, um, I don't think anybody has the definitive answer. Uh, I do think, though, that this is not a cycle we're in, uh, to the points made by the earlier panel. I think what we're seeing in retail is a real long-term evolution. And if you think about it, this is not like the recession where, um, where we had some real issues with the economy. We have historically low unemployment today historically high consumer confidence, interest rates are still low. Um, I think what we're seeing is a difference in what the customer wants. So when you combine a customer today that wants more than just the lowest price good, what they want is an experience and they want great customer service and they want products they want, and you couple that with, with the uh, incredible advance of technology and how that's created efficiencies for everybody. So you can pull out your phone and you can basically price compare, retail compare. Uh, and, and so I think that today's retailer better do both the in-store experience and the e-commerce technology piece really well to survive. What about you, Mark? 
Uh, I just follow the godfather over here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm one that's incredibly bullish on retail. Um, I think retail is very exciting. Um, there's definitely uh, winners and losers today. Um, we're very fortunate to be involved in some of the most uh, innovative uh, brands in the country, so we get to see it real time. Um, there's a lot of capital that's going towards uh, exciting new ideas. There's, there's still a lot of real estate capital going to developers and investors who are able to execute uh, development plans that attract these kind of brands. Um, so I, I'm, I tend to be on the very bullish uh, side of things. Retail is, it, there's not an apocalypse, a pop, I can't even say the word anymore. There's nothing horrible going on in retail that it's just gonna blow up in front of us. Um, there are changes, the mall developers are in a, um, they're in a very challenging situation. Um, but I, but I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on retail and I'm very bullish on, uh, in, on the, experiential side of retail and just could be more excited about it. All right, so um, talking a little bit about consumer uh, behaviors. So uh, when I was growing up, and I'm going to date myself here, so we ordered things from Sears and Penny's catalogs, and today they call it uh, e-commerce because you do it online. Um, there was no same-day delivery back then, but what broadly does uh, the the evolution of e-commerce, what does it mean for physical retail space? How do, how do people who own uh, physical space uh, need to respond? Who are you asking? Look, I, I'll answer. I think this is a good topic for all of us. Um, uh, there are a bunch of digital, digitally native brands that started off, and I'll use Warby Parker as, as an example or Everlane as an example, where they came out early on and said, we're never going to have physical stores. That was an asinine statement. Um, today, if you look at companies like Warby Parker, um, what's driving the growth of their business is physical retail. Right. Why? Because a customer can finally discover what Warby Parker really is when they go into the, to the physical manifestation of what it is. Uh, the, the, the internet, if you will, is a very democratic um, uh, place to go, but you really can't understand the ethos of a business. You can't really touch and feel the merchandise. Um, when you walk into a store, you can go, wow, I know what these guys stand for. I love how, uh, I love the customer service experience. I, I get these glasses or I get these t-shirts. So physical retail is very important to these in brands and, and forever will be. I will add one other thing to that because, you know, to a retailer it comes down to just bottom line, you know, profits. I think digital retailers are finding that opening stores can be more cost effective in customer acquisition than acquiring the customer via, via the internet. Yep. And you would think that's sort of counterintuitive, but when you run the numbers, the expense of, of acquiring a customer online is actually more than bringing a customer into your store, which is another reason why a retailer, a, a successful retailer has to do both really, really well. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Jennifer, let's talk a little bit about the investment sales market and what you're seeing out there. You've talked about the bifurcation and even trifurcation uh, of the market. So what do you mean by that? Um, so basically that concept, that idea is around 
Um, who are the buyers in today's market? So my business is investment sales, and these guys are on the retail, more on the retail side of things. So when you're interacting with buyers and sellers, where's the capital flow coming from? So the way that the buyers have changed because of this kind of tectonic shift that we're seeing in retail is pretty significant. So at the, it's really a function of who has the money is, is an easy way to sum it up. So if you look at the top of the food chain and you look at um, the institutional buyers, so mostly made up of pension funds and REITs, a lot of public money or publicly traded companies. And when Wall Street got wind of what was happening in retail and all of these big boxes contracting, they got scared. They scattered scared on retail. And so these big institutions, their stock prices fell. So they, in a very unusual fashion, did not have money. So what happened was, those big properties that they would buy, the power centers, the grocery anchored centers, not so much grocery anchored, but the big power centers for sure, there wasn't enough demand for that product. So cap rates started expanding. So we would sell those properties easily on a six, seven cap. Today you can buy them for seven, eight, nine cap. Actually eight, nine is probably a little more normal. So no demand up there at the <coughs> rare airspace and the bigger stuff. And then if you drop down, Herb alluded to it a little bit earlier that there's so much money for the smaller stuff. So take, for instance, an unanchored strip center that's worth maybe $3 million. So if you're buying a $3 million shopping center, a multi-tenant deal, you can usually get like 30% down, 70% loan. So 30, 60, 90, that's $900,000 cash to the note to buy this property. Everybody can do that. And we have an environment where we have job growth, it's frothy, everybody has money. So when we sell a property like that, they're easily in the sixes on a go-in return, sometimes in the fives, and we'll get five, six, seven, eight offers on those. Then if you look at kind of the middle tranche, really, so what I'm saying is the entire buyer pool now is private capital. That's kind of how it shakes out. So if you look at who has money for private capital, as product starts getting to like say five to 15 million, that's a little bit rarer for a private capital investor to be able to have that kind of a down payment. So those cap rates are seven, in some cases eight. It's all specific to the location and the tenant mix and the credit, but that kind of frames up where things are trading in the investment field. May I ask Jennifer a question? Yeah. <clears throat> so imagine someone I think the, the only thing you didn't touch on, and I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this, is so um, it's, it's the top tier properties, the irreplaceable real estate, like the yeah. Lakes having Bishop Arts or what Alan Knox and his Henderson. partners are doing yeah. on Knox Henderson or the Nashers have uh, at North Park or what we're doing on, on Henderson Avenue or yeah. uh, what's happening in, in Deep Ellum. Um, my 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 experience has been when you own irreplaceable real estate. No question. And real estate that um, has all kinds of very interesting or creative traits that there's a whole different market. Whole different market. Right. Absolutely. I just thought you. Yeah, yeah. So the, all of that that I just explained was pretty much broad strokes. But what Mark is talking about is exactly right. It's all and has always been location, location, location. Um, the Knox Henderson deal, the Henderson properties that you're doing, 
you know, that's core infill, irreplaceable real estate. So um, you're just, <coughs> you're in a very different space and you have a very different buyer pool and cap rates get compressed. It's almost like when you're selling a piece of art at Christie's, something that you don't really have any comps for, you know, it's a Picasso. So it's a, it's a really unusual trade range. All right, let's uh, talk about uh, the retail tenant side. Which types of tenants are expanding? Do you want to uh, answer this one, Alan, please? Yeah, so <clears throat> we're seeing as this pivot is being made in retail, we're seeing really three or four distinct classes of growth uh, where traditional retail is, is actually slowing down. One is in the entertainment and restaurant uh, businesses. You know, it used to be that an entertainment concept was sort of taboo in shopping centers and there were all kinds of restrictive covenants, co-tenancy clauses, and now we're seeing that they're actually a welcome tenant to the more traditional retailer because it drives traffic. So the, the top golfs of the world, the David Busters, um, the main events, movie theaters are now well-liked and their growth has been very strong. Um, restaurant space, same thing. We're seeing a proliferation of, of restaurant growth. Medical retail. We're seeing medical retail continue to boom. Where these medical retailers, optical, dental, chiropractic, um, urgent care, they want to be in the neighborhoods. They want to be in the neighborhoods for the same reason a traditional retailer wants to be in the neighborhoods, and we're seeing strong growth there. The, the low-cost provider is exploding. The Dollar Trees, the Dollar Generals, the Ollies, Ross, TJ, again, those, are, those retailers are catering to customers that really don't care about technology, don't care about shopping online uh, to any material degree. They do want the lowest price product. They want selection, and, and that continues to boom. And then fitness. Fitness is really the fourth category we're seeing that, uh, that continues to really grow. A lot of the same reasons as, as entertainment and restaurant provides a service provides an experience for the, uh, for the customer. So that's what we're seeing. Okay. Um, Alan, uh, sorry to go back to you again, but I wanted uh, you to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing with Kohl's. So <clears throat> Kohl's is, is interesting because I consider Kohl's to be really the leader in the department store space in looking ahead. Traditional coal stores, 85,000 square feet. Uh, we were brought on board to help them, along with uh, uh, some other firms around the country, to help them monetize the real estate that they own, downsize their big stores. They've identified 300 uh, plus stores where they want to downsize from 85,000 square feet to 55, 50 or 55,000 square feet. They understand what it takes to be a landlord. They're willing to pay the cost of demise, separate utilities, um, and find a tenant that they believe is complementary to their business. And so we've been charged to help them uh, find subtenants to go in and lease between 30 and 35,000 square feet of a, of a Kohl's. So that's one aspect of, of really using their real estate smartly. They're also, they've also concluded that they don't need all this parking space. And so we're helping them find tenants that maybe want to go out on a pad in a parking field. And, and we've got uh, a number of things in play there. So at the end of the day, they'll have ownership in a multi-tenant property, 
that they may monetize by selling. And the cap rate they'll get will be much better than if they were to just sell a coal standalone. So um, those are just three or four aspects of what is becoming a much more of a multi-dimensional um, uh, process with coals. All there's right, a, we're gonna uh, ask, oh, did you wanna weigh in? Well, there's another um, concept that's happening and evolving that I think is fascinating, and it's not my business, it's your businesses, but I would be really interested to hear you guys comment on it. So, everybody has their opinion about the Kardashians, but whatever, that is what it is. But if you watch what Kylie Jenner is doing from a retailing standpoint, it's fascinating. So. Maybe she doesn't want to open a storefront on Fifth Avenue, but she opens a pop-up. And I don't know what she's paying for that pop-up. She could be paying a million dollars to be there for a weekend. But she ties that into her Instagram. So she tells, I don't know how many followers she has, like 17 million people, that she's going to be in New York on Fifth Avenue in this pop-up. And the pop-up is beautiful. I mean, the way that they um, retail these stores is amazing when it's only gonna be there for like a weekend. And I mean, the volume she's doing in a weekend has gotta be millions of dollars out of that store. It feels like we're in this shift of blending online with this sort of different kind of format. And I know, Alan, you're very well versed in neighborhood goods. Well, Brother Mark is the one to speak to neighborhood goods. Neighbor I was just it's fortunate to get involved. It's a fascinating concept because they've taken, essence, a big box and they've put beautiful pop-ups inside it. I mean, I don't know what people are paying in rents in there, but it seems like that's the solution to retailers saying, I can't pay these rents anymore. And it yeah. goes beyond the rents. Yeah. Well, well beyond the rents. Well, I think that there's a couple of things. Um, there. So, first of all, to Alan's point about customer acquisition cost, um, we're, we're involved in a lot of digitally native brands, um, both from an investor and from uh, in our firm. We help them grow. Um, you, you, you gave a couple examples. Uh, um, so, uh, the ladies, how many ladies here are, uh, are customers of Glossier? All right, okay. So, oh, you need to Google it. It's yeah, so if you're not, so there, but the, I would say go study what Emily Weiss has done. Um, she's just created one of the billion dollar unicorn, com unicorn companies. She's phenomenal. She, she started a, a, a cosmetic brand and really started it on Instagram. And then when she started doing these pop ups, and she did one in Dallas. Um, on Henderson, it, it was it was just phenomenal. She spent a week there, spent an enormous amount of money, but they don't look at those situations as real estate costs. They look at them as marketing costs, and it's all about customer acquisition. Uh, number one, number two, a lot of these companies now, new brands and even uh, more historic brands like uh, Louis Vuitton and Tiffany are deciding to do pop-ups. Why? Because uh, they want to do things that are more interesting now. Uh, again, Louis Vuitton has a humongous brand, but, but when they show up in an interesting street and do something fun and creative and playful, all of a sudden it attracts a new customer. Right. So, uh, and the third thing is, so many new brands, and this is what's hard for la landlords to get their heads around unless they finance their properties in a way that can allow this to happen thoughtfully. So many of these newer brands want to make shorter term commitments. 
And, and that is the wave of the future. Smaller stores, shorter-term commitments. Makes it sense. seems to be a concept that is working for all <clears throat> players. Um, so I uh, wanted to go down the panel and ask you each to weigh in on what has you most excited about the future of retail and the innovations that you're seeing in the retail space. And we'll start with you, Mark. I mean, I, I started this by saying I'm, I'm incredibly excited about retail. Um, I think I've lost my mic. Um, I'm very excited about retail. From, from a personal perspective, um, several of the digitally native brands that we're involved in, but uh, uh, th there's a company that Alan and I helped start called Neighborhood G Goods, which is essentially um, um, a new version of an old concept called a department store. And many of these new innovative brands are coming to, in some cases, pop up there, but come physically be present. And it's, it's cotton on, and we're going to be taking this new department store idea and growing it across the country. Um, we're very excited about that. Um, we're also quite involved in the food and beverage business. Uh, hopefully many of you have been to our food hall up at, uh, up at Legacy West. Um, the, the, the food space, the F&V space in general is a very important space going forward and we're super excited uh, about uh, the food hall business. But in, just in general, um, there, there are just so many new and exciting new brands uh, being born all over the country. Um, replacing some of the old stale and uh, lethargic ones. And so I think the future is incredibly bright. What about you, Jennifer? I agree. I mean, I'm a broker, so I'm always optimistic. But I do <laughs> think that the future is bright. I think it's bright in um, DFW. You had asked the question earlier about where we are in the cycle. Um, and so the way that we are looking at this cycle and we we think about these things, talk about these things a lot, and usually history can be a pretty good predictor. So with all of the population growth and job growth that we're seeing in DFW, we're looking around the country for when has this happened in the past, and can we kind of look to previous experience to pattern where we're going, going forward? So we started looking at Los Angeles in 1985. So I think a lot of people have heard this analogy, but if you really dig into it, it's fascinating because Los Angeles in 1985, I mean, we all had very um, expanded cap rates because we were coming out of the so savings and loan debacle, the 1986 tax law change, so things were on shaky ground for sure. But from that point for the next 20 years until 2005, they were the fastest growing city in the country. And as a result, their cap rates compressed faster than anybody else and stayed lower during the downturn than virtually anybody else's besides maybe Manhattan. So if you look at the growth that's happening right now in DFW, depending on the numbers that you look at, we're supposed to have around 10 million people in the next 12 years in this city, which is a gigantic change in population. And we will likely be the fastest growing city in the nation every single year, year after year, which means it's very possible that we could be like the next LA. We are now a primary market. There was a time when I was at CBRE and there was a panel happening. It was an international um, conference 
and we had big institutional investors at the front of the room, and they were talking about primary, secondary, and tertiary markets. Three of the guys on the panel said that Dallas-Fort Worth was a secondary market. One said it was a tertiary market. <laughs> I was so offended. I was like, seriously. And this was a, a conference that was happening in Las Vegas. So I think we can all agree now Dallas-Fort Worth is most certainly a primary market. And we may just be on that kind of trajectory that Los Angeles was on for the last 20 years. So I'm super excited about that. And then technology. I mean, I, like everybody else, I'm turning 50 this year. So technology is not something that I grew up with. And it's new. And it's a little bit scary. And I have kids. And I'm constantly saying, put that phone down. I hate technology. But if you think about it, that's their community. I mean, my kids are on Snapchat and Instagram, and that's how they talk to each other. That is their community. And that is changing how we do business. That is changing how we look at retail. It's changing everything that we do. At Strive, we're really interested in technology. And so I think that's going to, if we can lean into it, create more creative ideas, more connection, more sense of community. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're still all human beings, and we will always be human beings. And what's the most important thing to a human being? Community, connection with each other, physical connection. So I don't think that's ever going to go away. So <clears throat> for those of you who know me, uh, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. <laughs> I am um, pretty conservative by nature. Some would say much Let's less see. than half empty. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, but I will tell you that I'm really excited about where we are in the retail and the retail real estate space um, for a couple of reasons, Not, notwithstanding everything that, that my partners here said, because I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> one, I'm excited about the, um, the fact that there will always be retail and, and a customer always wants an experience and will always be shopping. How do you make that pivot into today's customer? And that's what excites me, is how we're going to make that pivot. We're not going to forget about traditional retail, but there's also going to be a big focus on giving the customer the experience, adding technology to the mix. And so, um, you know, Mark was very modest about talking about neighborhood goods, which I was fortunate to, to you know, he, he birthed it and I sort of helped deliver it. But, um, but that's a really exciting concept. If you guys haven't seen it in Legacy West, you should. 32 pop-up shops, incredible combination of social media and technology and freshness and food and beverage. That, to me, is retail of the future. Um, and then the other thing I'm really excited about in this whole transformation is what we're going to do in the Knox District. And, and I think when we finish with our plans for the Knox District, you'll see something that will be, you know, one of the three or four best urban mixed-use street projects uh, in the country. So, a lot going on, and uh, we got to be smart about it, but it's really very exciting. All right, we have time for maybe one or two questions. Does anyone uh, have anything they'd like to ask the panel? Your chance. Okay. Yes, Mr. Greenberg. Yeah. That. Um, well, first of all, they have amazing leadership, and they and both companies have a, a balance sheet 
to, to follow their leadership's uh, vision and dreams. As I mean, Apple and, and Restoration Hardware can completely have reinvested themselves in themselves and remade themselves. Uh, we've been fortunate to be part of every Apple store that's ever opened on this continent. And now what we're doing is we're taking a lot of the smaller stores and, and making them larger. There's not many net new stores we do every year, but we do a ton of repositioning. Restoration Hardware has gone from multiple small stores to now they're going into markets and doing 40 to 100,000 square foot galleries. If you go to Manhattan, you should go see the new one we did in the Meatpacking District or go to Chicago and see the, the historic Three Arts building we kind of reimagined in Chicago. Um, they're, they're, they're doing things that are truly changing the the trajectory of, of their brand and acquiring an enormous amount of customers. The amazing thing is as they shrunk their store count, <coughs> built bigger stores, and were able to put in a much larger percentage of their assortment, their online and direct consumer business grew by 100 to 150%. So these stores matter, and that's the my big takeaway, hopefully, y'all today, is uh, physical retail matters. Um, in a really big way, and, and the best of the best in our business, in the retail business, know that. Any other questions? Yes. Jennifer, on the investment sales side, how, how do buyers, we talk about pop-ups, and talk about digitally native brands that are now brick and mortar, but haven't been around that long. How are those, how do investors look at those? And you talk about cap rates, you talk about analyzing what Yeah, it, specific to retail, I feel like the tenants are really at the front of the curve, figuring out the trends, understanding them, and then bringing them into a concept that goes into brick and mortar. And then the investors are kind of not the creative front people with the ideas, but they're just evaluating, right? They're just looking at it, and what's the longevity of these tenants? What are the sales? If I make this bet on this property, if I buy this property, how sure is my cash flow? So the way it's showing itself in investment properties right now is everybody wants to buy product that has experiential tenants. Um, everybody wants something that you can't replace online. Um, and specifically in this market, which this may change, um, they're looking at the existing rental rates and they're looking at occupancy costs and they're trying to make sure that when the, the term rolls that they don't get a reduction. Can I, so. the, the one other thing they're looking at, sales. Absolutely. Sale, sales being the big thing, because yeah. rents follow sales, and when they, they, they might see a low rental rate, but if they see high productivity that they, they, they can bet on in the future, no question. they're willing to pay a premium. Absolutely. The, if there's any developers in the room, there are two pieces of advice that I can give you. One, which Mark just touched on, get sales reporting in your leases because that's a big piece of why people buy what they buy. And the second thing is, if you are building bigger properties that have the traditional big box lineup in the back and then pads in the front, separately parcel everything. Because what's happening is the back piece with the bigger boxes, even if they're right-sized boxes, those are selling for eights and nine caps. But you can sell those pads and reduce your basis Five, high fives, low six caps. So tell your developers separately parcel everything so that they at least have some kind of exit strategy to monetize what they've done.
big thanks to our Market Matters panelists and moderator for their participation in the event. Thank you to our sponsors, Grant Thornton and DCEO, for making the event possible. Thanks to Belo Mansion for hosting us, and thanks to you for listening. Head on over to recouncil.com and join us at an upcoming event, and make sure to subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.